Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Tuning for a Radical Philosophy live broadcast from Monash University featuring Associate Professor Karen Green, Professor Jana Thompson, Professor Lorraine Code, Dr Denise Russell and Professor Moira Gates. Here a discussion on how philosophy for women has changed over the years. A joint event between the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy Broadcast live from Monash University on Thursday the 7th of July between 3 and 4pm on 3CR, 8.55am, online and digital. Let's get radical about philosophy. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to a live broadcast of Radical Philosophy from Monash University. This is a joint event with the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55am, digital and streaming live. This is Janet Thompson again, and I'm going to introduce the next panellist. She is Moira Gatons. Moira Gatons is a Chalice Professor in the Philosophy Department at Sydney University, which is now a unified philosophy department. She is a Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and the Academy for the Social Sciences in Australia. She has had a long-term interest in embodiment and theories about how bodies of women and men interact, interact with the body politic. She has turned to Spinoza as a philosopher with something important to say about embodiment and corporeality. And she's also been working on George Eliot. She is the author of Imaginary Bodies, Ethics, Power, and Corporeality, also Spinoza's Hard Path to Freedom, and with Genevieve Lloyd, she's written Collective Imaginings, Spinoza, Past, Present, and Future. So sorry, past and present. She is now constructing a Spinoza's theory of art, which includes ars vivendi, in other words, the art of living. Moira. Thank you. Um, I very much wish that uh, we had a bigger budget so that we could make this something like an episode of Without a Trace, you know, so that at some point... Um, what you'll see is, um, you know, the cold case, and you'll see us all as we were 30 years ago. Um, Because believe it or not, we were once all, well, if not young, a lot younger than we are now, and um, pretty naughty in various kinds of ways. Um, I'm going to take this partly as an occasion to um, uh, reflect on what it was like back then, Um, I was actually a PhD student when this paper of mine was published in the special issue of the Australian Journal of Philosophy. It was not written for the Australian Journal of of Philosophy. It's a chapter of my PhD thesis. I think I presented it in 1984 at a Women in Philosophy conference. So there's a sense in which the philosophical community uh, can take no credit at all for that piece, assuming it would want to, maybe it wouldn't want to, um, but it could take no credit for that piece it was nurtured very much by 
um, a female-only um, philosophical and theoretical community, which I remain extraordinarily grateful for. I was a PhD student at the University of Sydney in 1978. I left in 1979 for a year and went and worked with juvenile delinquents um, in an inner-city suburb, which I um, enjoyed for a while, but I actually did go back to my PhD in 1980. I uh, did my undergraduate at the University of New South Wales. I was the only woman who did honours. Um, there was only one woman in that department. She hasn't been mentioned so far. I really think she should be. Her name was Barbara Roxon. Uh, she taught me logic, uh, which holds absolutely no fear or mystery for me. Propositional predicate, bring it on. Um, uh, but she also taught me um, some very early uh, feminist uh, theory uh, and um, existentialism. I then moved to University of Sydney, as I've mentioned to you, and uh, I was in the Department of Lunatics, <laughs> uh, which had more women then than I have ever seen since, anywhere. So lunatic departments have lots of women. Um, uh, at that time, Jean Curthoys was there, Liz Jacker was there, Denise Russell was there, Liz Gross, Mia Campioni. Uh, there are a number of uh, uh, women who seem to be doing something that um, I thought was very um, worthy and I'm sure it made a difference to the um, courage that I had to continue to work on the work um, that I was doing. By the way, given uh, what Karen, I think, was saying earlier, or perhaps it was Jana, apologies for not remembering, um, about who was around in the 50s and 60s, uh, Barbara was. Uh, she was only ever a level B her whole career. Um, so that's one thing I think about. The other thing I think about is it's just amazing to recall, and I'm, you know, I'm continuing the without a trace theme here, it's amazing to recall um, how little published work there was in the late 70s and the early 80s. I mean, now, you, if you go to a feminist uh, philosophy section of a bookstore, if there were such a thing, or, you know, you go on Amazon or whatever, there's millions of texts. I mean, there's so many, many texts. Um, what stands out in my mind, and, um, you know, it shows you how few there were, of course, there was Shulamith Firestone, The Dialectic of Sex. Of course, there was Germaine Greer, uh, The Female Eunuch. Um, but leaving aside those, uh, what stands out in my mind, I looked this up, Susan Mollerokin, Women in Western Political Thought. It wasn't published till 1979. That was the year I decided, I'm out of here, I've had enough. This isn't for me. Like, that's the year I dropped, dropped out of my PhD. Um, uh, Harding and Hintercar, Discovering Reality. That was an edited collection, brilliant collection. That was 1983. Um, and Lloyd, of course, uh, our very own um, uh, philosopher to be extraordinarily proud of, The Man of Reason, was 1984. Uh, so I think it's very hard to imagine now that it wasn't as if there was a lot of either written materials to which you could um, appeal, and I think that's why Wollstonecraft was always a very attractive figure to me, and certainly Jacqueline Broad and Karen Green have... You know, if you, if you ask the question now, what are we going to put in the place of the man of reason? We're not going to put a woman of reason. We're going to put women of reason. And these two have certainly left no doubt that they have been there all along. Um, 
So um, it is hard to imagine now, as I say, uh, I certainly was on the end of giving seminar papers, which I'd worked very hard to research and um, construct, where I actually had people sitting in the front or middle rows laughing at what I was saying. I mean, they were actually laughing at what I was saying. Um, and so I think it's true that there was some crazy stuff and some not-so-crazy stuff. Um, I'm not saying there wasn't crazy stuff there, but I think, you know, if you're out there, there's crazy stuff. You, you have to work it out. What's crazy, what's not? I mean, it is crazy, isn't it, that ethics has something to do with epistemology? Isn't it if P, then P? Maybe it's not if P, then P. That's crazy. What's she saying? She's saying something crazy. Well, yeah, maybe it sounds crazy, but I think there are ways, as Miranda Fricker and Lorraine Coates, also before Miranda Fricker, but certainly Miranda Fricker and Jose Medina have shown in the present that that is a coherent thing to argue and it's an important thing to argue. Uh, it's wonderful to be here in, tw in 2016, 30 years after the anniversary of this volume and see all female keynotes. Yes, absolutely wonderful. Um, because I was present too in 1983 when Genevieve Lloyd gave the presidential address to the AAP and her intellectual courage must be unmatchable in some sense. Um, to have done that in 1983 is um, really an extraordinary thing. So to have all female keynotes in 2016 is wonderful and I'd like to acknowledge Graham Oppie's support, continuing support for women in philosophy through the AAP in Australia. I think it's really, really important. So there's no doubt now, I think, in anyone's mind that feminist philosophy had an enormous impact on social, political and ethical theory. Uh, you know, names like Iris Young, Carol Pateman, Carol Gilligan, Virginia Held. You know, you, if you're working in philosophy and ethics or politics or social theory and you don't know those names, you're not doing, you're not doing your job properly. So it's certainly true that today there's a very strong... Um, a series of female philosophers, of women philosophers, uh, that young women can say, I can do that. You know, there, there are, it's not, it's, it, you know, it's not, uh, it's not something that uh, is out of my reach. Also in metaphysics, uh, it was a bit slower perhaps to come through, but people like the wonderful Sally Haslinger, who we've got here as a, as a keynote, um, Sandra Harding, uh, Natalie Stoljar, just a few that, you know, I would mention. I still think there's a serious problem uh, in philosophy, um, certainly in Australia, but gen more generally in Anglo-American contexts, where uh, there's the problem of cognitive dissonance I don't think is being taken seriously enough. Uh, I think uh, many of my colleagues believe that the problem's been sorted, the problem of gender's been sorted. They're not sexist, I'm not racist, you know, da-da-da. And that's partly why I think this work that's being done now by people like Fricker and Medina is so important, because I think it shows and a lot of social science work too, that shows that those who think they're not behaving in these ways are really a big part of the problem because we all behave in these ways, including women. It's not, you know, it's not just a problem uh, with men. So, um, you know, I think that the, a lot of the work that's happening now in, you know, metaphysics, like Natalie Stoljar's great paper, I think, on, on, on woman, you know, what kind of category it is, she uses the work of Armstrong. She uses the work of um, uh, uh, philosophers who uh, in the past thought, you know, feminism was rubbish, and she uses their work to do fantastic metaphysical work on the concept um, of women. So I think a lot of these crazy intuitions that we had back then um, have been... Um, argued cogently, robustly, and very, very convincingly. Um, 
And so I do think that um, it was worth it. Um, and I think that um, things uh, are better now than they were then. Thanks. Our final panelist is Denise Russell. Denise Russell is an honorary research fellow in the philosophy program at the University of Wollongong. Her former position was associate professor and head of department at the University of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> she is the founding editor of the journal Animal Issues and author of the book Woman, Women, Madness, and Medicine, published by Polity Press in 1995 and reprinted in 1998, which shows how, how popular it was. She recently published a book with Pluto Press called Who Rules the Waves? Piracy, Overfishing, and Mining the Oceans. It presents a critical analysis of the law of the sea and proposals for a new form of ocean governments. She's working now on animal ethics. She continues her work on animal ethics and is building a website about alternatives to using animals in experiments. Rut Denise. of Radical Philosophy from Monash University. This is a joint event with the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 AM digital and streaming live. I think all the speakers have mentioned Jenny Lloyd's book, The Man of Reason. For me, it was a, a really groundbreaking book. It came out in 1984 and I reviewed it for this uh, journal issue that we're talking about in 1986. A, a year before, in 1983, as, as Moira and, and others have mentioned, Jenny gave the AAP presidential address and it was largely on the ideas in The Man of Reason and it was met with incredible resistance by the predominantly male philosophical community. I remember Professor Brian Ellis, who was a senior professor of philosophy at the time, coming out afterwards and saying to me, because he knew that I was working in epistemology, he said, what the hell was all that about? And that really summed up the response that a lot of people had, I think, to that talk. There was incredible resistance to thinking that... Sorry. Um, all right. Um, there was incredible resistance uh, to thinking that anything to do with reason, this wonderfully abstract concept, could have been gendered or sexed. However, over the decades, many of Jenny's ideas have taken hold in philosophy. We see that here with Lorraine Code acknowledging an influence from Jenny's book. Uh, but also in, in the broader communities of thought, I think, the ideas that Jenny put forward have had an influence. So what are some of these ideas that were so contentious at the time? Well, in my review, I tried to isolate six key topics. And the first one was to do with reason, science and the domination of matter. Drawing particularly on Greek philosophy, Jenny revealed how various conceptual divisions had significant influence on Western thought. 
rational knowledge versus natural forces, the ordered mind versus disorderly matter. And she pointed out that value and maleness had been linked to the first in each pair, rational knowledge, the ordered mind, and femaleness as a natural force or matter, something disordered, is to be overcome in the pursuit of order and reason. Francis Bacon reinforced this ideal in his model of scientific knowledge as control of nature. Where nature is still seen as female, the good scientist as gallant suitor. Now more and more, the weaknesses in this idea of science as trying to achieve control and domination of nature is being exposed. It fed into projects that showed no concern for environmental outcomes. The oceans are under threat from overfishing, pollution and climate change. There are already dead zones in the oceans. Large sections are so depleted of oxygen, nothing can survive in them. 200 have currently been identified, some of which cover an area of 100,000 square kilometres. Not only do they kill off marine life, but they threaten the well-being of people who depend on their sea for their livelihood. This domination of the sea world is matched and linked to the human domination of the world of the air. Our sciences have produced technologies that allow extensive pollution of the air we try to breathe, causing catastrophic health outcomes in some regions and actually shifting the climate in a way that is making the world less friendly to humans and maybe will ultimately kill us all off. So the idea that nature in the form of the sea and the air can be dominated is true to some extent. We can dominate them by destroying them, but then we very likely destroy ourselves. So this is like a reductio argument. I assume most don't want to see the destruction of humanity, so let's look at the philosophical underpinnings of this harmful direction. If we are critical of the idea of the domination of nature, what would our relationship to nature be replaced by? More and more, the idea of respect for nature is gaining traction. It is a gentler, more open and more female idea of working with nature rather than dominating. The ethics of care, tradition, and that is in ecofeminism, is an example of how philosophers such as Val Plumwood, who's already been mentioned, have developed an alternative feminist vision of our relationship with the world. The second topic that I identified in the book has to do with reasonableness, being reasonable. I, sorry. Jenny argues that in the history of philosophy, reason is not regarded as a neutral quality which simply came to be associated more with men than women. Rather, part of what it is to be reasonable is to exclude or transcend the female. Ideas about what it is to be a woman are then affected by these processes of exclusion. Philo, for example, emphasised the superiority of reason symbolised by man over sense perception symbolised by women. Men make moral progress by developing reason, becoming more male. Women can only make moral progress insofar as they set aside characteristic female traits. This line of thinking came under radical attack by the French feminist philosophers, in particular Irigari and Sissou. We acquired that wonderful word, phallologocentrism, and its critique. 
new conceptions of what it is to be a woman, what it is to be reasonable, what language should look like were discussed. It was an empowering movement that had wide ramifications but did not succeed in changing the course of Western philosophy, I contend anyway, significantly in the desired way. It did, however, lead to much scepticism about ideas of reasonableness or wariness about accepting that a claim is reasonable. The third, uh, the third area I wanted to look at was the idea of reason as attainment. Jenny points out that in the 17th century, especially with the work of Descartes, reason is linked to attainment. There's an ironic twist here, as Descartes expressed hope was that rational inquiry would be opened up to women as well as men. But the rigid division he maintained between body and mind worked against this result. Descartes' view of reason as a method for acquiring truth was tied in with this division. Mind as a distinct entity from body was firmly linked to reason, body to non-reason. For Descartes, all non-rational forces, which included passion, sense perception and imagination, were regarded as intrusions from the body. The mind was occupied by the intellect, reason alone. The sharpness of the divide between mind and body then forced a deeper split between reason and non-reason than had existed before. Traditional associations put men on the side of mind, women on the side of the body. This opened the way to a thorough denigration of female thought processes. Many feminist philosophers have overturned these beliefs, giving a primary place to the body in thought processes and raising the status of passion, sense perception and imagination. This is especially true of the French feminists, but not only them, Moira's groundbreaking study of sex gender brings the body into philosophy in a very significant way. The rise in importance in phenomenology with the primacy given to the body is a strong indication that philosophy is moving away from Cartesian thought. Though outside of philosophy, these ideas still had some adherence. I was going to go on to say something about truth, but I think I better cut back. <laughs> no, well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll go on to the other themes, and if I have time, I'll come back. Uh, so the next theme I want to look into is reason and progress. Jenny's fourth topic concerns the link forged by Kant and Hegel between reason and progress. For these philosophers, reason is presented as a development away from non-reason, away from nature or from moral immaturity. Again, the connections are made between men and reason, women and non-reason. So reason is tied in with moving beyond the female, which is an inferior stage of development. Western philosophy has had a chance to embrace nature, uh, this thing that men in philosophy had hoped to move away from, with the suggestions coming out of environmental philosophy, for example, the work of Val Plumwood. But it has not done so. Again, that's my contention. Environmental philosophy remains on the fringe of the field. Students are lucky if one option is devoted to it. This has to be crazy in terms of getting discussion going about how we should live in the world before we destroy it completely. Also, the maleness of reason, in this sense, 
of not being contaminated by nature on its way perhaps as much today as 30 years ago. The distinction between public and private was another theme in Jenny's book. The public being the world of reason and men and the private uh, being the world of non-reason and women. Jenny discusses this in relation to Rousseau and Hegel. Carol Pateman focused a lot of her theoretical work on a critique of this public-private dichotomy and many feminists took up the cry that the personal is political. Changing social conditions in the West have led to a weakening of the distinction and its role in philosophical thought. But of course, for some women, they take on the private, they take on the public, and they experience the stress of a way too busy lifestyle. The final theme is the struggle for transcendence. Men are defined and women are the other. Some questions are raised about this. For instance, could there be a female transcendence? What would that mean? Is transcendence a male ideal? Of course, we need to look at exactly what is intended by transcendence. But it comes back to the earlier theme of transcending nature. We should be cautious then. Nature is biting back. A major study which came out in March this year, headed by James Hansen, perhaps the most respected climate scientist in the world, warned that on our current emissions trajectory, we face the loss of all coastal cities. Most of the world's, most of the world's large coastal cities and all their history, not in a thousand years, but as soon as this century, we can have ideas about moving away from nature into a world of abstractions, but more and more it seems to me that's like fiddling while Rome burns. I believe that philosophers, female and male, should take more responsibility for dealing with questions how we can live in a world that humans have created in such a way that it will be around for future generations to enjoy. We should embrace nature and develop an ethics that will sustain life. In exposing the maleness of reason, Jenny pointed the way for a different direction in thought and in deed, and not one that should only be associated with women. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. I find it very interesting in the way that the panel, uh, a number of members of the panel have um, gone on in their writings to deal with such subjects as ecological ethics, ecological philosophy, animal, uh, animal concerns. And that, I think, has to do with the way that femina uh, uh, interest in feminist philosophy leads to other things. It's certainly been true in my own case. I have not written much directly on feminist philosophy, but I have been very much influenced by feminist philosophy in my work. Most of my work in recent times has been on reparative justice. I was influenced by John Howard when he said that people of today should not be expected to take responsibility for what happened to what happened in the past to average, and I thought that's a question that needs to be answered, and I wrote a book answering it. 
I've also written on intergenerational justice. And these works, although they're not directly on feminist topics, they're very much influenced by feminist ideas of the self, the located self, the historical self, the self that locates, it in, like, locates herself or himself in a history, a, a family history perhaps, or a history of their people, and where there's been a lot of unfinished business that comes from history. Uh, all right, well, I had better conclude. Uh, Mary McCloskey and Barbara Roxon, who were mentioned earlier, were our elders, the elders of our community. And for some of us, our mentors. We who wrote for or had something to do with the special issue on women and philosophy of the Journal of, the Sto of Australasian Philosophy are now the older generation of women philosophers. We have experienced changes in our philosophical world and even greater changes in our universities. Not all of these changes have been good. But one of the best things we have experienced over the years is the growing presence of intelligent, committed, insightful women philosophers who have joined our ranks. Not all of them ride on feminist issues, but why should they? All of philosophy belongs to us. If someone were to propose a new women and philosophy issue, it would, be almost, it would be very hard, I think, to know what to include. It would be almost as hard to know what to include on an imagined issue on men in philosophy. <laughs> but our 1986 effort served its purpose, and we celebrate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.